Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need more listener support to be able to continue producing these episodes this year. So if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. In case you haven't heard already, I also wanted to share that I recently launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which is more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you can call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we talk about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations or even bring multiple people with contrasting or complementary views together to help further expand our learnings. For more information and to share suggestions on what you'd like to hear there, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Dr. Scott Timke. So increasingly, the process of deciding, of decision-making, is taking place without people's involvement. And so these decisions are becoming automated. And more importantly, there's very little scope for appeal. And so that also ultimately means that we have less clout, less sway in how the processes that organize our lives can be altered to better suit our interests. Scott is a comparative historical sociologist who studies race, class, and technology in modernity. He's a research associate with the University of Johannesburg's Center for Social Change and a fellow at the University of Leeds' Center for African Studies, where he studies the overlap between algorithmic capitalism, fintech, and neocolonialism. His second book, Algorithms and the End of Politics, was released in February of 2021. And we begin here as Scott shares about what first sparked his interest in looking at race, class, and technology in modern times. I was born in the early 80s in South Africa, and which sort of you and sort of your viewers know, was sort of both the very mature end of apartheid, but also the moments where it started to decline. So there's a lot of social turbulence, a lot of protests, a lot of repression. And sort of being sort of a white person in that community, you start to see how the basic sort of unfairness of that society. And so those tumultuous years, very much sort of orientated the types of things I'm interested in. How does racial oppression occur? What are the mechanics by which? How do states oppress people? How does class become involved? What types of technologies are militarized and deployed against peoples to subjugate them? And so those types of things were sort of very much sort of in the forefront of my mind as sort of I started to look around me. And then sort of as I started to go through schools, our schooling system in South Africa started to become a little bit more integrated. And you start to learn, work with, participate with, play sports with people from different communities. And those sort of are some of the anchoring points I think that sort of stake out the types of things that I've tried to follow through in my research, at least. Mm, I appreciate you sharing that. And before we dive in further, I want to be honest and say that I found it challenging to prepare for this interview because there's so many layers to what you address. And a lot of it is focused on the digital realm, which can feel abstract for me and hard to conceptualize. So I just want to put that out there first and say in advance that I may need clarifications on things that I'm just still trying to wrap my head around. 
But to start us off with a more relatable and bigger picture question, I'm aware that as people talk more about technologies like social media and the internet, many are sitting with this question of how do we make these algorithms better serve humanity? Or how do we make better use of a lot of the data being collected to ensure they don't end up being weaponized against us, for examples? But you've gone deeper to question how the entire way of reducing our social relations through algorithms is in itself changing our lives in ways that we might not even be able to fully recognize right now. So can you walk us through your train of thought on this and how you see algorithms in this system inevitably driving a process of simplification? So I think that's that's a great summary. I can't even, I think I need you to become my marketing agent. <laughs> I think that there's several sort of layers that sort of operating simultaneously and they sort of rub against each other and sometimes create opportunities for change. And we'll get to those in a moment. But so let's speak a little bit about the layers. You spoke about one where it's how the technologies themselves, because of who just happens to design them and the types of biases they may bring to the table, either that are sort of unconscious or very conscious in some cases, how the data sets when it comes to sort of facial recognition, sometimes they discriminate against people of color, right, for example. That's sort of one that's very common, uh, or you find it in the media in the United States at least. The other things that are a little bit more abstract, as you were saying, about like the very types of logics in the first place that we come to evaluate why we want to pursue certain types of technologies. Now, certainly we think that there's a lot of utility to the data platforms that we use on a day-to-day basis. I think all of us would agree that many of these technologies, social media platforms, are incredibly useful. And that's why we sort of use them, despite knowing that the legal frameworks, the user agreements that we sign are sometimes serving our best interests because we offset by the sheer basic utility of these of these tools, right? We understand generally as a population that like even things like Slack are incredibly useful to ensure productivity or help coordination within firms. These things have obvious utility that I don't think many people would deny and I don't think many people really want to get rid of them. The problem though happens to come when we purely think about technologies on one axis of evaluation when we purely think about their utility to maximize profit, when we start thinking about technologies only in that way, whatever social benefits they get are rather incidental rather than the main imperative. And so the type of work I'm trying to do is to look between how can we make the incidental components, the social goods that come about, the things that we obviously recognize have a lot of value to us, how do we make them the main imperative rather than simply enriching the 1% as it were? So I think that's sort of the the types of things that I'm very much interested in and trying to find scope to both think about and try to get others to, to think about too. Right. So I guess to ask a more basic but critical question, do you see the internet and information technologies as being themselves neutral with the biases coming from the people behind them, their governance and their users? Or do you see these tools in of themselves serving particular logics that cannot be considered neutral? No, I would never consider them neutral, the the algorithms that is. They have their own affordances and their own skews by the nature of their design, right? We think about sort of like if we had to build a building, for example, just say a house, it obviously has a set of properties that favor enclosure rather than being sort of on the outside. So the the architecture, the design of these things to sort of use that type of language certainly has affordances, skews, emphases, biases, pick the word you, you wish. That said, at the same time, there are people who deploy these affordances in particular ways to suit their interests or pursue their interests. 
So sometimes I think we get into a bit of a, a fight sometimes, a bit of a, a way of thinking where we put these things as diametrically opposed to one another, the affordances versus the interests of the people who happen to use them. And for me, it's a question of both as these things are also situated within this larger historical social setting that we find ourselves in, one that has a deep, rich, complicated, complex, and contradictory history. So I think we need to see technologies both upon questions of who designs them, their own attributes that they have, and how these things themselves are conditioned by a long, rich history where there's an intense amount of struggle over the design of these things in the first place. They're really not starting from ground zero because they're being created given this context that already exists. And it's connecting a world that already has a lot of historical injustices. And it's kind of weaving all of these threads together. So there's that bit. And more on how algorithms, I guess, end up reducing social relations, there's this broad idea that the positive potential of the internet and social media lies in how they connect the world and connect people with others and stories and discoveries that they may not otherwise be able to make offline. And nothing is, of course, ever all good or all bad, as we just mentioned. But I'm curious to hear how your understanding and views of social connections and relationships may have shifted since diving into all of this research. Well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that informs my own sort of like understanding of this area is I grew up when the internet had this big bang, right? You, I went to university and one of the first assignments we ever had to do was send an email to ourselves, right? I'm sure sort of the listeners out there will sort of laugh at that, but that I think was worth 20% of our mark, right? And so you sort of come of age watching as platforms like Facebook, Mortal, MySpace at that time, that was very popular, Facebook, and then all the other sort of platforms that become much more popular come into existence and they have a degree of initial influence and then they have massive influence or the ability to sort of coordinate the influence in different types of factions on about them and through them. One of the things I think that we sometimes miss is how digitization as a sort of a larger process is very much similar to industrialization in the early part of, or the late part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. How industrialization fundamentally rechanges cities, workplaces, relations of hierarchy, the public and private realm, those same types of things are occurring under digitization more broadly. Sometimes I think when we when we focus too much on an individual firm or an individual business strategy or an individual quarter, what are the quarterly earnings from these companies, we sometimes miss these larger sort of decade-like transformations that are occurring to our cities, to ourselves, and to our sort of our countries. So I think that that's this larger thing that I'm interested in. And to get to the point about simplification, which is one of the core themes of one of the books I've written on this area, is that too often we become so ingrained in the minutiae of platforms. What are the user agreements compelling us to do? What are we losing when we sign them? That we miss the sort of like larger two, three, four decade transformation that is very much changing who we happen to be, the types of subjectivities, the types of identities, the types of ways of being, the types of behaviors that sort of come into existence and now become salient for us. By comparison, and I'm, I'm sorry for drawing on here a little bit, but by comparison, industrialization creates sort of workers, management, and capitalists. That type of process fundamentally changes how people come to think of themselves and how they come to do their work and how their work is organized. I think some of the types of processes are occurring right now in digitization that our, our very nature of work, our identities, 
the way we move through the world, the way we experience it and comprehend the world are simply changing too in ways that are as expansive as those that occurred under industrialization. To that point, you talk about how information technologies are entrenching us deeper into this system of extraction and exploitation. And I know there are so many different angles you could address this, but are we able to recognize this showing up within our day-to-day lives in the more micro level as we engage with these platforms? And otherwise, what are their greater impacts exerting their logics and influence and how they might also limit our imaginations or senses of choice? I mean, I think those are great questions. I think we do, for the most part, pick them up. I sometimes don't think that we connect them as well as we could. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is we all, is often one of the things that we come, and you see this sort of when you, with user experience studies of platforms, there's a lot of grievances that people have with them. They're frustrated by this or that. Why can't this platform do this? Or why can't this technology allow that? We often think of, of when we call a help center line and the voice is automated and we have a set of preset menus that come to us and we and we sit there and go, well, the preset menus can't cater for the type of particular complaint that I have, or I'm just looking for information that these menu options don't really provide. I want to speak to a real person. One of the things I think that is occurring with the ever greater technologicalization of the world, this digitization I've, that I've been speaking about, is that increasingly people are being removed from the process such that we're now starting to become part of the inputs and we're affected by the outputs, but we're not really part of the decision-making process within that. What I mean by that is that we can't really speak to someone at, say, the cell phone company we're trying to talk to to talk about a bill and why there may be charges that are unfair on them. So increasingly, the process of deciding, of decision-making, is taking place without people's involvement. And so these decisions are becoming automated. And more importantly, there's very little scope for appeal. And so that ultimately means that we have less clout, less sway in how the processes that organize our lives can be altered to better suit our interests. If these things become automated and we think about how they may occur at places that are much more meaningful than just, say, the telephone company, we think about how welfare systems may be automated and how they may automatically make decisions about our lives with very little means to appeal. And these things are sort of preset categories that if you don't fill in properly, you get booted. That's going to have dramatic changes on how, for example, the experience of child poverty or how people are able to get goods or access services that are that have been carved out for them that they may not have now access to because they can't navigate these systems well. And there are very few people to even appeal to to tell that you can't navigate these systems well. To clarify that, does this mean that we essentially, at a collective level, we have less power and ability to co-create the world when we essentially can't, for example, influence the robots that are all automated that we are engaging with. So we're we're engaging less with real people who may be influenced by the things that we may be asking for. Instead, we're faced with these robots that cannot really perceive and take in and understand our full sense of humanity. Yeah, I think that there's a point at which the humans being removed from the decision-making process and the systems that come to govern our lives. I think your summary is very, very good there. Uh, and ultimately, I think we need to be concerned about this because the stakes are very high. What happens when these things start to bleed over into our criminal justice system? We then start to see people who perhaps not might, whose circumstances might not fit the pre-given categories, 
but are nevertheless skewed and pushed into one of them, and then an injustice is done in their sentencing. Or we think about how these same types of technologies deployed in a different way may bleed into the political realm, and now we have less scope to actually enact democratic changes to the world around us. I think that those prospects are very grave, and we need to think a little bit more about them. Yeah, I certainly have a lot of concerns, especially with how the dominant culture seems to conceptualize advancement of humanity through this idea of technological advancement and the digitization of everything. Because in my mind, it's sort of equated with a process of dehumanization and really limiting our abilities to be fully human and connect with other people in the most authentic and deepest ways. I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, one of the ways that I think about it, just sort of given the parameters of my scholarship, is questions about alienation. I think very much we are now to starting to see the mechanization of alienation or the, the automation of, of alienation, the digitization of automation, uh, sorry, of alienation. And we ultimately start to then have fewer and fewer means to reach out and really sort of have genuine human encounters with other people. We see this again, sort of maybe to speak about the US, how because of the media system there, these identities about who you happen to be, are you a Democrat or you're a Republican, become so salient that they almost become cleavages for massive social fights. If you're a Republican, you have to watch Fox News and you have to believe everything that, that's broadcast on it. You know, the same thing is true with the Democratic media system. It's such an intensification of these two identities. It's become almost it's sort of very binary to sort of play upon the idea of of the digital and digital society, our identities have become very binary. It's you are this or you aren't that. The, the levels of, you know, of difference and the ability to navigate difference and the ability to argue and exchange reasons for each other has sort of very much evaporated. Everything is now, if you are this, from the beginning, I can't, let, I can't listen to you because whatever you say is propaganda or, or you know, fake news or whatever it happens to be. That's not a cause to deny that some people don't have good motives and aren't doing genuine harm in the world, but at the everyday level, at the level of your neighborhood, it's sort of very much alienating you from, from one another, that these, that these categories that are created and shaped and reinforced on platforms now come to entrench us ourselves in ways that we can't even reach out and understand the people who live around us. That resonates deeply for me because I'm currently writing about binary reductionism and how everything is becoming like this side or that side. And just as examples, I have strongly critiqued, quote unquote, clean energy or quote unquote, renewable energy. And some people are like, well, if you critique this, then you must be in support of the fossil fuel industry. Or I might critique racial frameworks as being insufficient to fully understand Asians across the board. And people will say, well, that sounds like a right wing talking point, like you don't see race. So it's just like, I don't know, maybe this culture that we're currently entrenched in is stunting our abilities to have nuance and to recognize the full complexity that is in each of our beings as humans. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an outsider to the United States. So I've, I've I've been there once to go get Mexican food crossing the border from Canada down to, to Bellingham. So I know very, I know very little about like how people live and see, but you, you watch a little bit of American popular culture. You watch Twitter, you watch, you know, all these, all these things. You talk to people. And the one thing I, I see is how just like reactionary the United States has become. And what I mean by that is everyone's is, is 
very quick to rush to judgment. There's a lot of snap decision-making based upon these preset identities that people have because it's almost become an us versus them because the you have political gridlock and you have polarization and your senatorial politics ensures that sort of small states have a bigger clout than sort of larger, more popular states because of your, the, the tightness of Supreme Court politics. That everything now is so, I don't, I don't really like using the word tribal, but is is so group and, and, and affinity-based that if you don't affiliate and if you don't affiliate and fly the, your, your team's flag in every moment, you're sort of seen as suspect. You're seen as if you may be hurting a cause. It's this kind of like politics of causes, like for a cause that must be triumphant at all costs. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of merit in trying to ensure that the fascists don't win, for example. Like there's a lot of good good to, to ensuring that we, you know, I, I want to be very clear, I think we need to punch Nazis. At the same time, though, we now have such intense polarization that even the people that you need to persuade that there's lots of merit in doing anti-racist work, right, or there's a lot of merit to be had in doing criminal justice reform, starts to keep entrenching people rather than persuading them to pursue the common good. It seems almost, and again, I don't want to be too, too flippant here, that very, the very idea of the common good in the United States has sort of evaporated very, very quickly. Yeah, and to that point, I have been thinking a lot about divesting from, for example, the short-form social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter, just because I found the comment sections to be so dehumanizing in how it really incentivizes and encourages this reactivity culture and judgmental culture where people aren't truly interested in having genuine engagements. People just like to drop their hot take and then leave. Or even when people do have a dialogue, it's dehumanizing in the sense that people can't see each other's full humanity or sense each other's emotions and states of being. So conversations can get so derailed. And so even though social media has been set up to supposedly connect people, I know that I personally have not loved my experience on it. And it's given me a lot of thoughts about how I want to divest from these forms of short form social media that encourage this sort of reactive response and spending more time towards other things that allow me to connect more deeply and genuinely with people. And I don't know, maybe part of this is because these social media platforms have been set up in this capitalistic system where they're focused on the attention economy. So how do they design algorithms and this platform to keep people there the longest? And a lot of times it's the reactive stuff that gets the most engagement. And so it just further incentivizes that sort of behavior. Yeah, there's there's nothing that, that enrages people more and drives more money to, to firms than the clickable bad hot take, right? Sometimes I think that the New York Times keeps a number of columnists on board just purely to drive hate reads. And now when you're starting to sort of commodify hate reads and sort of monetize them, like what does it sort of do to your journalistic discourse? I mean, I think there's another thing that sort of is, is at play to all the things that you've addressed. Or there are two things I would say. One is that because we don't really have a sort of a common experience of social media, each one of our feeds is very different from one another. And it's very hard to see, even see what other people's feeds happen to be is that there's a lot of context collapse that occurs. My way of understanding a tweet is shaped by the tweets that happen to be around it, for example. What am I reading around an issue? Or what are the other people who are commenting upon it? And so that can sort of attenuate or they may alter or 
shape my understanding, my interpretation of a particular tweet thread, for example, where someone else might not have that same experience. And so that then depending upon what they have, may I may be the one enraged or may, they may be the one enraged. So there's, there's no genuine, real structuring frameworks for interpretation. I'm not saying that we need the proverbial priests to come back in and help us read social media. And I don't think that's sort of a good thing either. But it does sort of talk about like how without these systems of hierarchy, your know, interpretation is now sort of a free fall and that can sort of lead to a type of engagement and drive sort of uh, the t- or creates content that is very quick to engage with and get sort of a lot of traction to sort of get as much revenue as possible because you need as many eyeballs on that screen so you can get the ad revenue as quickly as possible. So those things are sort of always there. That really speaks to the importance for us to all sharpen our critical thinking skills so we are made aware of this because I do think it has made productive and genuine communication more difficult when people might be talking about the same subjects, but the context that they are seeing that through are so vastly different. And oftentimes these platforms do not allow the space and time for people to have deeper discourses to get to the roots that they may actually share, but that they may see vastly differently because of the stories and the context that they personally have been experiencing or that their lenses have been shaped from. And to move on, to connect digital technologies to the larger political context, you share about the deployment of digital coercion, which you say refers to the various processes facilitated by digital technologies that greatly enable American rule, end quote. Can you elaborate more on what this coercion means and has looked like in practice that we might recognize and why you would emphasize that the internet has been weaponized and that it should be understood as a human rights issue? Yeah, so let's start with sort of the digital coercion bit and we'll then move to the human rights bit. I mean, one of the things that I don't think that enough American scholars talk about is sort of the imperial components of American communication technologies because of its ascendancy after the Second World War and even sort of then before in Latin America and the Caribbean, Central America. The United States is, a, is an imperial power. I mean, people don't want to talk about it in, that, in those terms. But it clearly is an empire. It has territories that it occupies. It has pro- it has provinces. It has all of the the mechanisms and apparatuses of imperial power. It sets the conditions upon which people can engage and shape the world. So, I think about sort of South Africa, for example, where I'm from. In order for me to go get a bank account, I need to ensure that I can show the bank my sources of income where I got the money from. In South Africa, this is called FICA. It's financial disclosure forms. The reason that South African banks have this sort of FICA system is because of anti-money laundering regulations passed in the United States. To sort of try and simplify a more and more complicated story, the United States has used its, almost all the, the banks in the world work in the United States, and they use a SWIFT system that allows transfers or exchanges between banks and because it's located in the United States, or at least one of its servers is located in the United States, it falls under American jurisdiction. And so the American lawmakers have said, well, if in order to counter anti-drug laundering, anti-terrorist laundering, you have to be able to disclose and show forms of income so that you know, we know the, the source of your funds. So in places like South Africa, I have to show my banking details, my letters of employment. If I get gifts from friends or family, I have to show that to the bank. And so you know, South Africa doesn't have full economic sovereignty because of the type of coercive power 
the United States has through its laws about technology banking, so on and so forth. And there are lots of these little types of things that you can see the world over. And so they greatly come to shape the life experience of people. So sort of go back to places like Kenya and South Africa, a place where I'm thinking of working about at the moment. There's this big, I talk about financial exclusion and to try now create more financial inclusion to get people to become banked. And typically people use their cell phone accounts in order to transfer money. The reason that they use their cell phone accounts is because they can't get banking accounts because they work in the informal sector. They can't provide bureaucratic letters and documentation of where they live, the sources of their income, and so on and so forth. So the vast majority of Africans and people can't get banked because of the types of economic conditions in which their lives are or how they exist because of rules made in, in the U.S. Congress. And so we now have people trying to sort of find workarounds for this, but otherwise they're just simply trying to work around the dictates of imperial power. So those are sort of things at the level of banking, but to sort of maybe make talk about things a little bit more vicious than that, we can think about how drone strikes are this global network where people, US Airmen, are working in Arizona using video feeds of drones that are over Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and droning people. And we've just recently had a report out in the New York Times about how some of these units are not in follow, not following laws, uh, the rules of law, and aren't even following the rules of engagement to the extent that they are claiming offensive actions as defensive actions, thus allowing massive civilian casualties. And so we start to think of the types of digital coercion that are of the type of the ability to, to, to shape and sometimes even end people's lives the world over simply because of the communicative power, the digital power that the United States has. And this may be a more introductory question, but how exactly does data collection, which a lot of people are increasingly aware of and concerned about, how does data collection and information and technologies and platforms relate to surveillance technology and state surveillance, especially as you note that surveillance tech disproportionately targets the most vulnerable? So what are the relationships between these tech companies, for example, and the state that people should be aware of? And how are they weaponized against dissidents or the most marginalized communities? Well, we'll go back to the idea of, of drone strikes. During the Obama regime or sort of government, he put together a program that targeted people in Yemen, Pakistan, Iraq, and Afghanistan based upon the types of profiles and signatures that they had. These, these things were called signature strikes. And so in this case, they often had sort of humans involved in a process and often involved in a kill chain, but depending upon their social media sites that they, were, that they had backdoor access to, the types of things that Edward Snowden sort of pointed out, using sort of social media, scraping social media sites, other non-public databases that had otherwise collected data on people, they were able to ascertain whether to call in a drone strike on someone based upon the data profile that they had. So these are things that are sort of very nefarious. Now, that's at the very sharp end, and it's a sort of very telling example of how the data, the incidental data that we produce just in the process of living lives may sometimes be used to justify you know, death from above. And that's sort of very, again, at the very sharp end. But these things also, also occur in places that are a little, a little bit less visible too. Uh, we think about how often these stories that, are, that appear in, in American news about how someone is visited by the FBI, for example, because they're looking up 
and they were looking at, at different types of rice cookers and rice cookers are now seen as ways to make bombs and so you then get a visit from the fbi to say well what are you trying to do over here so we have all of these types of routine surveillance that's now sort of built into people's lives and in most cases it's it's now sort of normalized accepted part a natural part of american life that this is how things are at the level mm. of, sort of the policing in the city we now have your police routinely have types of technologies called stingrays where they can either intercept people's cell phone accounts uh, or sorry, cell phone services or similar types of technologies where they automatically read people's license plates. So simply moving through the public now puts you at risk of being stopped by the police or not. And so mm-hmm. we know that how, how common or how frequently routine traffic stops turn into things that are much, much worse when you constantly have this active surveillance done by technologies without much human intervention, the humans have merely, have merely just put the systems into operation, you are very, you're very much having experimentation done on people around the world, plus in the United States, on how to rule them, and often without their democratic oversight. Again, just sort of to go back to the elements of the police, because so many, so many police forces in the United States are now almost private companies, they're owned by municipalities, that now because of the the corporate relationship between the municipality and the police force becomes very difficult to have democratic oversight over the police and corporation. So in many cases, you now have private police forces without the ability for democratically elected officials to even curtail their surveillance practices. They almost become a forces unto themselves. I hear this question a lot, which is people saying, you know, if I'm not doing anything wrong, why should I or other people be concerned about surveillance? How would you address or answer that sort of question? I mean, I think that that way of thinking is sort of foolish in sort of many ways. I mean, first of all, it's short-sighted because all of these surveillance practices are backwards looking. And so you never know who's going to be looking backwards and what they try to or going to try and find and how they can connect the dots in ways that suit them. I mean, all, all data analysis is framing in a, in a different way, shape, or form. What do you include and exclude to ultimately suit a narrative? Because all, I mean, despite what sort of people who study STEM say, quite a lot of data analysis is storytelling by a different name. What types of data are you collecting, organizing, and arranging for what purpose? So mm-hmm. you might believe that you're not doing anything nefarious now, but the things that you think are innocuous in five years' time may be the signals for something much more nefarious. We have to go back to the idea of the rice cooker. You bought a rice cooker today, and in five years' time, someone goes, oh, well, he was making bomb, he was collecting a pass for a bomb from 2021 already, right? So I think it, it doesn't really anticipate that, that type of, the idea that, oh, I've got nothing to lose or I've, I'm not doing anything wrong, doesn't really take into account what the future may hold and how things may turn out differently from expectations. The other thing, and I think this is just a, sh- a short-sighted thing, is it doesn't really matter if, if you're not doing anything wrong either. You have a fundamental h- human right to privacy, and one should never allow your human rights to be compromised, regardless of whether you're doing something nefarious or not. So I think you know, as soon as you start to concede that, ah, my human rights can be violated, it sort of allows other things to be compromised, and you sort of have the slow frog in a pot boiling. So, I mean, I can never quite understand why people are prepared to simply shrug off and say, well, I'm not concerned about my human rights being violated uh, at all. You know, it's fine. I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah. The, point is, the point is that someone else is doing something wrong 
and you're not acknowledging it as such. Yeah, I think this becomes especially concerning when we think about, uh, for example, land defenders or environmental activists or social justice activists or dissidents who who may appear to be a threat to the state or to some major corporation with a lot of influence on the government. If these people are constantly being watched, then even if they're not doing anything wrong in the moment, whatever data was collected about these people from their past could just somehow be framed or put together, as you mentioned, as a justification to incarcerate or arrest people. Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, one of the things that sort of is very shocking about the United States is whenever there's, you know, and it's typically a black man gets gunned down by the police, the media or the local media station always finds the worst proverbial thug shot of the person possible. And so everyone has those uh, photos of themselves doing ridiculous things or performing or, or mock or, or playing up one aspect of themselves. And now you want their selective representation to be shown at someone else's discretion to further their own narrative. No, I don't think it's a, I don't think people are thinking sufficiently right about this, as you say. Well, at a more global level, you explore the role of military power and the digital components of imperialism that protect resource extraction or the creation of surpluses, end quote. Being a show on sustainability, our listeners are aware of a lot of the forces driving extractivism, the exploitation of lands and labor, but we haven't explicitly talked about how this is enabled by militarism in conjunction with digital technologies. So I would love it if you could illustrate for us how this has played out to facilitate the dispossession and expansion of this extractivist logic, and if you have any specific examples you can share. Well, let's start using an example from sort of Niger. And so Niger is a very complicated thing. So I'm going to try to simplify it as much as possible. So forgive me if anyone is listening is a sort of Niger expert. One of the things about sort of Niger is that it has a lot of uranium deposits and other types of minerals that are very useful for high-end technological components. The thing about Niger, though, is it's, it's a political black hole. It's a political and economic black hole. It's very difficult to govern. There's a lot of anti-state sentiment, or the state is very weak. The state is only uh, exists because of military partnerships that the U.S. military has with the state of Niger. The U.S. military is the main diplomatic entity working in that region to sort of prop up both the training of these forces, the administration of the state, and how the state is able to sort of mostly command capitals and then try to so go put down land riots, which effectively they are, by people who are sometimes resisting a state because the state is simply allowing foreign companies, particularly French companies, just to come in and, and take resources out, often without sort of good practices. So you have lots of petrochemical spills, you have uh, lots of de- degradation of land. And so there's a lot of protests against this that are expressed in anti-dispossessive movements. But of course, because they're Muslim, they're coded as Islamic terrorists, and sometimes the vernaculars in which they sort of express their frustrations those sort of often take on the best form, or at least from our vantage, don't really take on the best form. And so you start to have this deep uh, American securitization of this region to ensure that uh, resources can continue to be extracted. And periodically, these land revolts will sometimes get uh, Nigerian or Niger forces embroiled in conflicts. And as an example, a couple of years ago, four American servicemen died in uh, 
clash in, in Niger and sort of suddenly made news headlines in the United States about what are special forces troops doing in this region. But ultimately, they're there to help the state, the Nigerian state, preserve enough rule to be coherent enough just to be able to allow French firms and all to extract the minerals required to build high-end technological goods. And so you now start to see these larger global commodity chains and how the things that we use on a day-to-day basis in order to speak, communicate, uh, go about our routine business sort of come from the dispossession of people whose land these these mines are on. And these things become sort of very, very complicated very, very quickly. And even with all of these forces, something that you note is to maintain the status quo requires more than military force, favorable laws, coercion, and legitimation. You say a dangerous, impoverished, exploited, and oppressed urban class requires the development of a system of beliefs with several mechanisms to get the subject themselves to justify the prevailing social inequality and social order, end quote. What are some of those beliefs you see that are prevalent amongst everyday people that may be upholding this prevailing order of injustice? And where do you see the cracks coming from that might help people to learn alternate narratives and possibilities? I think that that quote is trying to sort of speak to just how expensive it is to maintain capitalism, to put it in a different way, right? We see the, the sheer amount of the billions of dollars spent on, on, on military forces. We see the billions of dollars spent on media forces. We see all of these things trying to sort of shape people to say, to recognize or to convince them that their life is very good and they shouldn't critique it. But if you have a look at political sentiments in the United States, the vast majority of people don't really believe that their lives are in a good place right now. So it's not only simply the costs required to maintain and stabilize capitalist rule in the United States and elsewhere, you also need ways in which people can understand themselves as benefiting from all of this expenditure. In other words, that they need to have a subjective comprehension of themselves as benefiting from and not being opposed to all of this expenditure. And so this is often what scholars talk about, like neoliberal identity politics or the neoliberalization of the person. I think that, that's, that I would agree for the most part with all those arguments. The difficulty I would say is that I think there's only so many people who think of themselves as neoliberal subjects. I think that those are people who, for the most part, benefit from the system and the vast majority of people in the United States don't benefit from it. I think this is one of the reasons why after the 2008 Great Recession, there was such a, a wildfire embrace of the, the 99, 1% uh, rhetoric. It became sort of very, very salient in the United States. And sort of you also had sort of some of its astroturfed variants that don't stand on me types, which, you know, despite it sort of being organized by the Koch brothers, is still very much people have genuine grievances to which they're attaching to that, to that politics, right? So more, so all in all, I think that there's an incredible amount of grievances in the United States that the neoliberalization of the person to affiliate with the way things are to keep the status quo simply isn't able to, to fully do. I think this is one of the, the frustrations that the Democrats have at the moment with sort of the Biden administration is that from my reading of the tea leaves is that there's a great worry that he's not able to keep the neoliberal order 
in check. And so there's a degree to which there's a reform element to try increase state spending. At the same time, though, those efforts have now been defeated within uh, Congress, or at least at the time of recording here, it looks as if Build Back Better is not going to come about. So you have a lot of self-sabotage within the Democratic Party because you have this uh, intense conflict within the American ruling class, at least on the Democratic side, about do we reform or do we double down? And people like Cinema and Manchin, I think, are on the, well, let's double down and, and, and pretend that everything's okay. And then you have others, sort of the Bernie Sanders types, Elizabeth Warren, who are very much like, we need to reform American capitalism very, very quickly. Otherwise, the entire sort of game stops and we're going to be left with our chairs, uh, to sort of use the metaphor from musical chairs. So do you do you see that people are increasingly recognizing that they're not, in fact, benefiting from the system? And so that sort of narrative is has been false. I think there's, there's a, again, a couple of layers over here. There's the one thing, there's the view that if you gobble up everything on MSNBC, things are doing well. And empirically, they are. Like you think about sort of joblessness, claims are down. But at, at another level, people don't really understand and are able to connect that to sort of policy goals. It's, they see that gas prices are going higher and they blame Biden for not doing it. Well, and so you have, on the one hand, like this policy framework, and, and then people themselves may be getting raises at work, but they don't really see that as connected to sort of the Biden's agenda. They are more likely to say, oh, well, that's my own individual negotiation skills. I'm a good worker or I'm a good manager. I've been able to bargain for this based upon my own capabilities. A very sort of individuated explanation for why they are now doing well. So, again, this is sort of like one of the things about sort of the alienated American experience is that, all the good things that happen in life come from me. All the bad things that happen in life come from the government. And so those are things that are sort of also sort of at play over here. I mean, getting back to the, the point that you raised about the grievances and the like, I think if, if you look at the poll numbers, the vast majority of Americans are deeply unsatisfied with the way things are. They have different ways of explaining it. They have different scapegoats for it too. But all in all, like, there's, there's this sense that that something is not right and something's going to give. And so this is this is, I think is sometimes the underlying current to all the to the, all those articles about like, is is the United States going to enter a civil war? It's just like, what's going to give? Is, something's going to have to give. And it deeply worries me that the tone of those arguments are like, we can only resolve this through conflict rather than recognizing that it's the way that we do capitalism is the thing that that is creating all this dissatisfaction and grievance. You can be anti-capitalist and still recognize that there are other ways of doing capitalism that are not as intense and as harmful as the type being uh, practiced in the United States. And finally, it was interesting for me to read when you wrote, American imperialism is the net result of politics, policies, corporation actions, and trade relations, the nurturing of local collaborators in dependent societies, and fiscal instruments to complement security forces, seeking to ensure that there are no insurmountable barriers to capital accumulation, end quote. We recognize that diversity lends itself to resilience in any ecosystem. And this is sort of what I see here is that a diversity of players and forces and institutions have been set up to create the resilience of this dominant 
extractive system. And that, in a sense, is biomimicry, but not really for the best purpose and for our collective well-being. And maybe this is why it's felt so difficult for people wanting to drive systemic change at all levels to achieve those ends, because we are up against a very resilient system that's been very much diversified. What more would you add to this? And how would you invite our listeners to begin to think about what it might mean to weaken this resilience so we might be able to rebuild the resilience of life itself and our regenerative capacities to recreate community and abundance and more genuine relationships and our well-being? I mean, that's a great question. I think there are a couple of things. The first, is, and I'll keep it sort of very short over here, is that you also have to recognize the sheer fragility of the system. A strong system doesn't need all of the things that you've just described in order to be successful, right? You only need the proverbial watchman if people are coming to steal, right? To sort of, you know, maybe that's not the right metaphor, but you only need security in place if you think you're being threatened. And so all of these, the densification occur because there's a degree to which people, the people in power know that they can be tossed out very, very quickly. Mm. We think about sort of the revolutions that occurred in the late 18th century, early 19th century, and how quickly life changed overnight. I'm not saying over here that we need to think about sort of revolution as in like going to war with the state. I think that the conditions are very, very different in there types of armaments are certainly very different. But I do think that we need to fight a little bit. We need to fight a, a bit more strategically and with different types of weapons in order to, type, to bring about the very types of things that you said. Uh, one of the things that I, that I think is sort of very profitable at the moment is sort of community engagements, building coalitions of the concerned at the community level, wherever those communities happen to be, and using those communities and those coalitions to start to drive local projects to demonstrate that these types of projects can be very, very successful. So I think this is why like some sort of Marxists who think in like big macro sociological forms are maybe a little bit dis dismissive of the community garden those association. But I think there's a lot of value in those types of organizations, not only in building skills, expertise, experiences, but like a community garden or trying to get a community garden you get to learn about the local municipal regulations governing urban space, for example. And that teaches you about how to navigate through those systems in ways to bend them to your advantage. One of the great things about bureaucracies, and I'm not a big fan of bureaucracies to begin with, and I'm not going to get started on my on, on a rant because otherwise this, this, this will <laughs> be unproductive, is that you can use them to, to your advantages. One of the things about if there's so many rules, if you learn how those rules work, you can bend them to your will. So I would encourage people to get involved in local communities, get involved in local municipalities, and to get familiar with, with regulations and to use them to your advantage. I think that particularly if you catch people off guard, you can achieve quite a bit in a short amount of time. Why does my heart take flight All over the world People rising up to show that the old ways have to go. The revolution is in flow tonight. Why do the tears fall down? We've been crying now. It's so hard. 
What has been an impactful publication you follow or book that you've read? One thing I would say is that I've learned an incredible amount from Black Marxists, particularly from the Global South and particularly from the Caribbean. So I would encourage anyone to go read people like Stuart Hall, uh, Sylvia Winter, C.R. James. They're all fantastic, deep, uh, wonderful thinkers. What are some mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with to stay grounded? I love the quote from Raymond Williams, which he says, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And I think that that's really what we need to do as uh, young activists is to give people reason to come out and join your cause. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? This is going to sound incredibly silly, but it's my wife. Mm. I am enamored with just how how strong in intellect and how purposeful she works on her projects. And that sort of gives me a great degree of, of source. It also makes me feel very shameful that I'm not able to match her, but uh, that's, that's something I have to deal with by myself. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but Scott's book that we discussed today are Algorithms and the End of Politics and Capital, State and Empire. You can follow Scott's work on Twitter at Scott Timkey. And Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's been a really enriching conversation that I'm looking forward to re-listening to again. So thank you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? It's possible. I, I think that just with, with less work than you think, you can make the world a, a great place. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also greatly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Debt by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 